Having a Gas With is the podcast that talks to the great and the good of the creative industries, and in particular, finds out what makes great music for film, for TV, for advertising, for dancing to, for cooking to, for f***ing to, and more. Today, I'm having a gas with Claire Freeman, a podcasting gun for hire who has developed an expertise in the medium over many years, and whose skills are now sought after by major companies like BBC Sounds and Slimming World. So uh, a good way to get into it might be um, for you to tell me what you, were, you, you, what you were telling me recently, just about what you do, you know, give us the nutshell of what you do right now. Ooh. So I have many hats. Um, I coach, I consult and I produce and I present as well. Um, I run my own business where I basically help podcasters um, be it individuals or groups or companies uh, make podcasts and that work leads me all across Europe um, many of the people I work with I've never met before um, we've just connected and work online um, I'm exec producing um, some series for BBC Sounds soon that's going to be immersive audio experiences mm-hmm. um, I make my own podcasts as well um, some of them have gone from passion to profit uh, and in one of them actually went from podcast to TV show, um, which was really random. Um, and I kind of have a bit of an ethos, uh, which is a bit unusual, probably a bit weird for you, actually, is that I actually prefer not to work in studios. I like to work with real people telling real stories in real environments. So that kind of means that I wander all over different places. So I've, I've sat in empty churches with no lights on recording podcasts um i've been in my car i've recorded loads in my car it's like one of the best soundproof places ever um although you do look a bit like a dogger yes Uh, that's slightly the downside of that um but never been arrested yet and never participated or been invited so i don't know whether that's a success or a fail um yeah and then in my kitchen in pubs Um, in community centres I really like I like the DIY kind of ethos about what I do and it's quite punky really I I was on the precipice of saying you might be uh, the world's first punk podcaster (laughs) well you know I have this theory right so um, microphones music has always been like a huge part of my life right I got bought a red recorder for Christmas when I was six years old. And that one gift pretty much changed the path of my life. Um, But when you look back at pictures of me, like when I was little, I was always like, we had this little karaoke machine with with a little microphone at the end of the living room. And I actually have a picture on my website, um, which I kind of share with people because I have this ethos that when we were, you know, in the 80s, maybe you're a bit young. I hope you're not, Greg, but we were doing mixtapes, right? And radio shows and our cassette players, like we were all like kind of listening to Radio 1 Top 40 with Mark Goodyear. And then uh, you'd be recording the song on your ghetto blaster. And then as soon as the DJ spoke, you had to press pause really quickly so that you didn't get the DJ. Um, and I actually still have some of those radio shows uh, that I made with my little brother. They are truly awful. But I was always playing with microphones and, 
yeah, doing like four track recording on my karaoke machine in my bedroom, had every little instrument that I could use. So I kind of like that DIY nature, I think that we all had in mixtapes. Um, I think really is, it reminded me, although I've, I'd already, before I started podcasting, been working in as a proper journalist, as people might say, uh, for the BBC and news, for Radio 4 and, you know, these kind of highbrow award-winning sh- like shows that I'd been making. I think what I liked about podcasting was it kind of just reconnected me with like that little girl you know, who didn't really care how many people were listening, didn't care about, like, how posh the microphone was. She had no freaking clue what she was doing, but she was just singing her little heart out. And uh, I think many of us were doing that. And I I think somewhere along the lines, as you get a little bit older and technology advances, and we have this thing where, particularly in production techniques, it's all about perfection. We sometimes move away from that as-live feel, that raw feel um we kind of got lost and we made it overly complicated and i like with podcasting that you can literally just be in your kitchen chatting with a mate put it out and that's okay and actually thousands of people will love it um, yeah that's what blows my mind that's what always what that's what i'm i'm doing this right now not necessarily because because we're all under the uh, under the cosh with coronavirus. Although I know that you said, you know, your your ears to the ground in the podcast world, and you said that podcasts have gone through the roof now. Everyone's at home because they, they yeah, need something to yeah. do. Uh, I, I've been trying to do this for a few years because I was always inspired. I don't know if it's obvious. I'm a Joe Rogan listener, and um, he he said uh, to Kevin Smith, "I'm not a famine thinker. I think if you're even vaguely interesting or interested in something, you can do a podcast. There's enough of an audience for everyone." and I can't tell, I don't know what you think of this, I wonder if with podcasting we've got to audio what YouTube was to video, which is to say, radio is very expensive and cumbersome to produce and has a very narrow channel of distribution, so you, you know, it takes, it's very difficult to get to the top, TV likewise, um, but the, with YouTube, there are people, anyone can upload, and some people get really, really successful, but we should manage expectations. Many, many people are not going to make a living from it. And would you mm-hmm. say that's similar in the podcast world? A few people really do well out of it, but generally you should do it for the love. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's also, you know, I've, I've, I've been in bands and done music in my time, right? I've played instruments and stuff, right? And And it's the same thing with that. I think once you start making music to make money... Uh, you kind of lose a little bit of the love. It becomes a chore. Um, And it's really interesting because I I coach people when they're starting out. And some of these people are like really successful directors who want to, you know, share their knowledge and their connection. And some of them are just like bedroom enthusiasts. And um, the first question I ask is, well, who are you making this for and why are you doing it? Because I think you've got to really answer those questions quite honestly and the other thing is like how you measure success of a podcast as well so this is like a figure that kind of quite shocked me but the average number of listens per episode of a podcast is actually 124 and now if we saw a youtube video that had 124 views we might be thinking oh that's not really done that well has it (laughs) but it it's not really about the number of listeners i think it's about the like what, what people do as a result of listening, like what's the engagement? Um, you know, I've done podcasts 
for fun that don't make me any money, but just, you know, one of my crazy passions and people like often get quite baffled about this when they know me. I love ice hockey. I love Toronto Maple Leafs and my team. Um, And obviously in this country and this continent, there's not really that many people. It's not like the main sport. So you kind of of the minority. But I knew of a few other people that liked it. And so, you know, a group of us just started to do a podcast talking about the NHL. And then we started picking up people who were in Taiwan, who were in Belgium, who were in Australia, who just happened to stumble upon us and listening. And I'd say like, you know, we were barely getting 100 people listening per episode and we're doing it every week. It was just mates via something like we're doing now, just having a little chat about all the games that had happened over the week and the highlights. Um, But I would say that I would know about half of those listeners because they would interact with us and we got to know them and we created like a forum on Slack Um, And then we kind of had, we built up, we kind of featured some of these people who were listening, who were passionate listeners, whenever there was a big story in their team. And I just kind of really liked that because there was that engagement. Um, But also I think like the intimacy of podcasts as well, that you, my theory is that if you're putting out a piece of music, a piece of art, a podcast, if you can help like change one person's perception or one person's life or you move somebody like no one wants to be vanilla you want there to be like some kind of like reaction right and if you can get one person to do that then then you've succeeded I kind of like to think in that that kind of small terms and like some of the podcasts I've I've done I've talked about mental health I've talked with people who've nearly taken their own lives but then haven't or they they tried and they weren't successful um, I shared my own experiences about my own journeys, um, which is a complete new experience for me, stepping out of journalism into podcasting. You have to be much more vulnerable um, as a presenter. And then I've had people kind of text me or email me and say, I was having a really dark day today and you stopped me doing something silly by listening to that podcast at that time. And to hear that stuff is like, wow, you know, like that's unbelievable really unbelievable even to the point where I've had friends forget my birthday but podcast listeners send me cards and presents of something that I've mentioned on the podcast that they know I love um and I just find that crazy and people send you messages like I wanted you to be the first to know x because you feel like my friend and after all these years of working in radio, like 15 years I've worked in radio, I never experienced those kind of comments. I never experienced that kind of intimacy on air or behind the scenes as a producer. And I, I thought that it, it really moves me. As a medium, I feel like it's still a new playground for me. And I've been doing this since 2012. So you feel like there's a, there's not only is there a stronger potential for connection with a uh, uh, more niche markets. I don't want to sound too markety, but more niche interests in podcasting. You can justify trying to appeal to those because if you were in something where the goal was to try and uh, pick up as many listeners as possible, uh, the example you just gave, which is the mental health and particularly suicide awareness thing, thankfully there's not a mass market for that because most people don't do it. But that's an argument against why you should just appeal to everyone because that is a very important thing to do for the people who need it. 
and you couldn't necessarily justify doing that on primetime radio. Um, I mean, there are some, you know, the late night talk talk shows and things like that. But I think, uh, you know, when you work in radio, there are much more um, boundaries. You know, you are tied to a very specific target audience that needs to match the station. You have certain junctions. You know, an interview might only be allowed to be eight minutes long and it needs to be eight minutes long. And it doesn't matter if in like seven minutes 40, they reveal something that's absolutely amazing. It's over at eight minutes. Um, so the freedom of just hitting record and seeing where a conversation can take you is it's quite liberating, actually. And, you know, like my my kind of tagline is that podcasts are a, a place where great conversations can happen. Um, rather than thinking of it like as an interview, I like to think of it as conversations. I like to think of them as stories. And that's interesting, like when you kind of go into like the branded content world as well. So, you know, I've made podcasts for banks, uh, for satellite companies, for charities, um, all kinds of different people. And that's really difficult because at, at the very heart of it, you are trying to sell something. You are you have a clear corporate message but how you go about that and how you move people and how you get them to react, I think is, it, yeah, it, it's, it's like an experiment really. And um, the, like the idea with podcasts that there's, there's no kind of set of formulas, there's no rules really. Like of, people often say to me, right, tell me, how can I do a podcast? And I'm like, well, I can't really just give you a manual. Like people keep saying to me, write a book, write a book. And um and I kind of come back to it, but then I'm changing it all the time. And I can't give you a book how to do it because that those set of instructions might not work for you. And often the fun part is like playing and finding out, well, what does work for me? That might work for you, but it doesn't work for me. And I like to think of it as like um, an artist palette. And so I do this thing called the Daily Podcast Review, where I listen to different podcasts all the time and I'm building up like the colours in my my palette so that when I kind of come to paint a new picture or, you know, produce a new podcast series, I can dip into that palette and think, oh, actually, that might be relevant for this. And I kind of get my colours and then I start putting it on a new canvas. And every project, you know, I literally just put a blank canvas and try not to just have a fixed set of um, structure, you know, that I just go take it off the shelf. Here you go. There's more of the same. I try not to do that stuff because I think you have the power to respect that every client, every individual, every person, every podcast that I work on, even as a presenter, I approach with a different feel that's right for that audience and the reason why that series is happening. Yeah, I uh, get the impression that if you just boiled it down to the rudimentary things you can say about how you do a podcast, which is how do you record this, where do you buy a microphone and where do you upload it, it would actually be a really trivial manual of things that people can Google. And so it's almost like, it sounds like it's saying podcasting is, since it's a uh, big bang in the last sort of 10 years or so, becoming such a, becoming a media which is so rife with potential and so diverse with what you can do that it would almost be like asking, well, okay, how do I make a piece of music? Write a book. How do I make a film? It's like, well, is it going to be fiction? Is it going to be nonfiction? What do you want it to be about? What appeals to you? Does it appeal to anyone else? And then this is why you're finding it difficult to write the book on podcasting. 
I just, you know, what? I just decided not to. I write blogs. I do, I do a blog on my website of things that I'm working on or uh, things that are catching my eye. And, and that works. And actually, some of the people have written books and they're great. They work. They're absolutely fine. If that's the way that you can learn and you take in information, then go get a book. There's plenty of them out there. Personally, for me, what I find has worked best is when I'm working with people, like I do webinars, I present workshops, I go around the country and do some of those for the BBC DigiCities campaign and, and the space. And that's really interesting. It, I mean, it's always interesting. The, the most common question that people ask is, how long should a podcast be? And what's your uh, most common answer? Well, I mean, is that like saying how long should a, a single be? Yeah, well, it could be two, could be four. There's no justification for why it should be either or anywhere in between. My my thing for that comes back to, well, who are you making it for? Yeah. You know, like if you're making it for someone who, I don't know, is... It's, it's a sport chatty podcast which you're going to put out on a Friday night. People are going to listen to it at the weekend. They've got a bit more time. But if you want it to be... I don't know, aimed at a busy working mom, then she's got 20 minutes or so to spare, but she's not going to give you two hours. So mm. it depends who you're making it for. But I just, I always laugh at that question when it comes because I just think, oh, how long should the symphony be? You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I really liked the one that you tipped me off to, which was Song Exploder. I had a good listen to that a few episodes. And one of the things I really appreciated about it was it was bite size. You get 16 minutes with Christine and the Queens while she explains how she made this single. You get 16 minutes with Tame Impala and, <laughs> and you get shown through their project file and then they get to turn the effects on and off things. And for us music geeks, we don't have long attention spans and it's great. It's exactly what we want. But mm. uh, I always liked the idea of, I, as for a long time, I only ever listened to stuff like Joe Rogan where it's all like three hours long. And I don't understand how they get the listening figures they do because I think Joe Rogan's the third most popular podcast in the world after uh, it was last time I checked last year. Uh, 20 million, 120 million downloads a month of three-hour content and I don't know who's putting it on or why. It's it's not really got a brief. I don't, you know, like, I watch Joe Rogan. I actually watch it. I don't listen to it. You go to the YouTube. I prefer to consume that on YouTube. Um, there are some that you just do YouTube. Um, he's one of them. I like the smaller clips that they do, the bite-sized clips. Um, I think what's really interesting about someone like Joe Rogan is... He is becoming a bit of a gateway for people to get interested in the medium. Yeah. So it would be wrong for me to criticise. You know, I'm not necessarily someone that agrees with everything he says. I don't really always like the production style that much. Um, you know, he got into trouble with like the Game Changers uh, producers when he let the guest kind of another guest kind of talk quite freely and criticised the game changers, but then didn't give the producers of the film a right to reply. And I do think that's going to be interesting to watch as a movement. As we see more celebrities become podcasters, um, We where is the role of holding to people account, yeah. right of reply, challenging people? That's what the role of a journalist is, of like, of a presenter, right? Yeah. They will say, but hang on a second, you just said this, but I've read here that it says this. We're going to lose that. Yeah, so it's like, and where's the overlap with journalism? It's just going to be a lot of um, self-promotion and, yeah. I, and I, I think it can be quite dangerous, I think. Not necessarily critiquing anything particular of Joe Rogan, but 
this is a trend that I'm seeing more with people that if they're not typically presenters who hold that kind of role, um, like, yeah, what what does that mean for us? And, and if you're not necessarily someone that knows about the subject they're talking about, you're just going to take it as given and take it as true when actually somebody else who might know more about the area would be able to go, well, that that's not quite right. And the figures he's using are out of date. So that slightly concerns me. But I do think what Joe Rogan has done for the podcasting world has been really interesting in bringing it to a wider audience. Um, you know, like a few years ago, when I first started out, I really felt like I was a, I often say like a, a girl in a boy's world. And that's nothing that I'm not used to. Like, you know, I did sound engineering at uni. I was the only girl on a course of 23 guys. I'm used to being the only girl, but it was a lot of blokes in their bedroom talking football. No disservice to that, right? But now I think what's really interesting about the podcasting world is we're starting to see more women um, stepping up, not necessarily through the commissioning process I'm hearing. Um, Spotify uh, in the UK have actually just set up a specific program to get and commission more women to do podcasts. But I think often women, A, have don't have the confidence to step up to the mic and B, don't have the confidence to go for the commissioning for the funding in the first place because they don't think they're going to get it. Um, and I think, you know, the reason I got into it was although I was working at the BBC I wasn't able to get BBC presenting experience and whilst I was doing reporting and news reading and producing and yeah doing pretty well on that I was often told I was too old I was too young I was too common I was too posh you know, every kind of excuse under the book. You were never um, in the Goldilocks zone of exactly right. I wasn't. I wasn't. And and it really dented my confidence. But I felt like this is something, you know, like that little girl within me holding the microphone. And it's what I wanted to do. It was like a dream job that I knew I could talk, but it was denting my confidence. So the way that I built my confidence and stepped out of that kind of high pressure critique kind of high level BBC world was I sidestepped into podcasting and I I took the time to experiment and practice and find my voice um and you know one of the the podcasts that I present now is in the top 20 um UK charts for health and fitness so what whatever yeah you know, that's brilliant you what, do you want, to... what, what is that podcast do you want to take us through that so it, it's um it's really kind of simple production um i'm often like is this is this real am i actually getting paid for this um, yeah. so it's the slimming world podcast and uh, i've been on a huge um couple of years of transformation where i left my permanent job um i was really struggling with my mental health i worked um as a reporter on the manchester bomb the night of that and quite a few of the things, I think the cost of working as a news journalist had hit me as well as a lot of personal things in my life. Um, and I'd gained a huge amount of weight. Um, so over the last two years, I've set up my own business, uh, moved, I've lost over five stone um, and just really wanted to get to grips with some of the things that were holding me back. And I met uh, a kind of kindred spirit when I joined a Slimming World group, which is obviously one of the top plans for weight loss in the UK anyway. Um, and she was my consultant and she had an amazing story that um, she broke her back when she was trampolining and was bed bound for several months. 
and they told her, we can't reconstruct your spine unless you lose uh, a significant amount of weight um, and you have to get your BMI down to a healthy weight. So she lost four stone while she was bed bound. And so we had these kind of amazing transformation stories and we thought there's a gap in the market in the podcast world right now for a lot of experts telling us how to lose weight, but I'm not seeing many people that are doing it right now who really understand what it's like. Um, So we just started recording just before Christmas uh, 2018 uh, in my kitchen. We just recorded four episodes. And at this stage, we didn't actually really know each other. We'd probably only known each other like for about nine months, but never socialised together. And so what you hear in those early episodes, we put out one every week, is you hear us getting to know each other and just talking quite openly. Oh, yeah, I had that too. And did you have that? And and we just made this pack that every week, for, we're just going to do it for six months. We just put out a podcast and we called it Slimmer World Podcast because we couldn't think of a better name, to be honest. Um, and that's really what it was about. And um, really quickly, within six weeks, we were, we were featured by Apple Podcasts, uh, New and Noteworthy. Um, then we started to be featured in uh, What's Hot in their, their section there. And it was like, what the heck is going on? We just thought that basically all like only people that we knew and our moms would be listening. Um, and it just kind of started to grow and grow and grow. And, and people were like... I'm addicted to your podcast. You sound like my friends. I feel like I already know you and we've been friends for years. And we we couldn't record in my, my kitchen anymore because I at the time I'd kind of had a bit of a row with my housemate. So then we started kind of like moving out to the car. Anna's got um, a three-year-old, so we couldn't go to her house. And we just kind of started going to different places and it built and built and it got to the point where... Um, Slimmer World called us and said, we love your podcast. How can we collaborate? And uh, it took a long time to work all the details out. But as of earlier this year, uh, earlier 2020, they are now sponsoring us and they're actually promoting our podcast to millions of their members. Um, and that was really interesting just to kind of see the difference that made. And, and consistency, I think, is really key when you do a podcast. Consistency, staying on message, Um, so that your listeners know what you're doing. But obviously having that extra boost of like being promoted um, was was amazing. And just I'm I'm just always amazed by what people say when they listen to your podcast and they really engage and really feel what you're talking about. Um, Yeah, it just it it blows my mind every time. So you've become a success of the podcasting world uh, in some sense, done really well. And earlier you said you have to kind of know what your podcast is about. And I know that at this stage for me, one of my mission statements is uh, I'd like to get people who've done well to share their stories of, you know, how they got from A to Z. Because um, it wasn't so long ago that I had no foothold in any industry and uh, was just jobbing around. And I was I was always desperate for people who had done things to sort of share some of the secrets or at least tell us the journey because every time I did hear someone's journey, it was never linear, never straightforward. And uh, that was, uh, I had always imagined it was, you know, because when you haven't got anywhere, you always imagine that the people who have got somewhere just kind of hopped on the bus and it was fine. So uh, I know that you weren't always in journalism, you weren't always in media. And uh, at one point, you were doing more normal jobby stuff. Why don't you take us through that briefly? (laughs) 
I think I've literally done every kind of job, Greg. I've worked at McDonald's. I've cleaned toilets. I've been a barmaid in America. Like, oh. so when I um, when I graduated, I went to go and work in finance, of all things. Yes. I worked as a credit controller. Glamour. Calling people up. You owe us some money. Get, get it over. Yeah. It's a great skill when you become a freelancer, I've got yeah. to say. Um, and then I went to work in sales. I worked as a recruitment consultant. Um, I was uh, recruiting uh, qualified, part qualified accountants, finance directors, things like that. Worked in the Midlands. And what was and the was uh, what was the day's work like doing when you were doing uh, recruitment? Because as far as I understand, I've never done recruitment, but I get that it's like eight till eight on the phone, nonstop type thing. Or yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's incredibly intense. Um, you know, you. you you're targeted for how many calls you make. You're making cold calls. People aren't always receptive. It's very different to like, you know, when I went to go work at the BBC, it was like, hello, I'm calling from the BBC. Oh, hi, how are you? As opposed to when you're cold calling, uh, people are busy. So that was really interesting. You've got to be good at writing. You've got to be good at talking. You've got to be good at numbers. Um, also, like it, it really gave me um, a wealth of knowledge about different industries. You know, I was working with clients like Cadbury's National Grid. So I was learning about the retail industry behind the scenes in business terms. I was learning about pharmaceutical industries. And now I work in the branded content world. Well, I can already speak the lingo. So I always think nothing is wasted in this kind of non-linear form. In the end, it all matters. It all helps develop who you are. Um, But I always felt that kind of burning itch I think within me that this isn't forever and this isn't quite right and what really decided it for me was when the financial recession hit um I was already working as a volunteer actually I was volunteering at at the at the weekend in hospital radio and I'd been doing like student radio before that but it was I never really took it seriously I never really actually believed in myself I never really thought that I would get a job in media. I thought that was for other people, not mm-hmm. for me, not for a little old me from Coventry, you know? Mm. Um, and and then something just clicked within me and just said, if you don't do this now, you will, you will regret this for your less, rest of your life. And with the financial recession kind of hitting, a lot of the recruitment world just kind of disappearing. It was an incredibly intense environment where, you know, you could come in, and the person you were sat next to yesterday had been fired for not yet doing enough work or they'd been headhunted by someone else. So it was incredibly high paced, adrenaline fueled, you know, that kind of knife hanging over your, your head the whole time. So I just I wanted to breather and I went and trekked the Great Wall of China, as you do. Um, went to Canada for a couple of weeks uh, to see family and uh I I then started, I managed to get a lucky break um, and started at the BBC right at the bottom. You know, it was like I went from a high flying sales consultant to right at the bottom, you know, two days a week, six month contract, uh, answering the phones, um, doing doing the logging of some uh, some of the programs. And and I got a lucky break, actually, in that that department was Radio 4. It was for a program called Farming Today. And that's where I started. And it was quite hilarious, actually. They they kind of thought I'd been whirlwinded in because at that time, I'd, I'd never even had like cafetiere coffee. Um, I was afraid of animals. So the second day they sent me to a pig farm. That was interesting. 
And yeah, and I had never even eaten any of the pieces of fruit other than a banana and strawberry. So here I was working in Radio 4 and it was like a bit of a culture shock, I suppose. But um, it was it was a it was a lucky break, but it was a long, long slog those first four years at the BBC, because in any kind of creative world, you've got to be ready for that rejection. And I guess the recruitment world gave me that kind of tenacity, that that kind of perseverance, those skills, that that kind of um, drive within me um, to make sure that I could kind of keep going. But it was incredibly hard. You know, I went and was studying at the same time as I was working my way up in the BBC. I went back to do a master's part-time. Um, so I was living in Coventry. I had to move back in with my mum, working in Birmingham seven days a week and doing a master's part-time in Nottingham just to make it work and just to, you know, get to this mythical place that I kind of thought was going to fix all of my life. Um, It didn't quite work that way, but that's something that you learn as you grow up, isn't it? Yeah, it's certainly something we're all in danger of. I think as soon as I get that, that's the thing, all done. Mm. And of course, it's never that way because I don't think you'd ever want it to be all done because, you know, then you've still got the rest of your life to uh, get on with while while you're finished. It's never finished, but... um, Yes, there's always a there's always a new set of challenges to open up, and so when you'd got to uh, when you actually got got into that new world, what was the next challenge? Because I'm presuming that's what bridged the gap between there and where you are now, being this podcasting guru. Yeah, the I think what I kind of quite quickly realised is that initially I went in thinking I just want a job in radio, but then. I kind of learned that there are so many different angles to just work in radio on its own. And I was really quite lucky. Actually, I wasn't lucky. I was just nosy. I just forced my way in everywhere I could um, to just go and kind of work in different parts. So I worked from Radio for Features, a programme called Soul Music, uh, where we take a song and kind of listen to different people's interaction with that song, uh, to The Archers. So I was looking at radio drama, um, specialist, um, rural farming programmes. And then I also was working in news as well. And I made the leap from uh, Birmingham to Media City. Uh, when was it? 2012. And I decided to work just in live news then, live radio, live current affairs. And that was a completely different experience too, because you're on the hamster wheel where you've got to come up with ideas constantly. You know, when you're doing a daily programme, Monday to Friday, three hours a day, you have to learn to very quickly harness how many ideas. And you can't be a perfectionist. You need to kind of come up with, say, 20 ideas and maybe three will make air. Um, so that was that was a, a great kind of skill, but also the the speed and the pace that you're kind of working at was completely different. Um, so that was really interesting. But I think one of the things that I kind of felt I often missed out on with the live world was the chance to kind of really play and do long form creative stuff. And that's often what I was doing in my bedroom um, be it podcasting or other things outside of work. I still had this kind of curiosity that I wanted to play. And I've always done stuff involving music anyway. So I think for me, the idea of working in radio with sound and music being sound, they kind of always crossed over. Um, so yeah, it, it ended up just kind of being a, a crazy little, crazy little whirlwind. You know, I remember once I 
I, I needed desperately just to get my first job taken seriously as a journalist. And I jumped at this chance for an open, they were doing an open day somewhere in, I think it was BBC Hereford and Worcester. And they had um, a how to use the weather, how, how the weather presenters work, but there was also a Dalek. And so I ended up being the Dalek for the afternoon. Uh, I mean, fortunately, I'm quite short, but my elbows and my knees were completely grazed. And so I was basically like dicking about being a Dalek. But the reason I did that job was because I knew that someone who was working on that project was quite senior in the Midlands in the news department. And I could just get a conversation with him, which would then introduce me to someone else that then meant within a month I was reading reading the news bulletins for the Midlands for five stations. So I kind of just thought, whoa. I'll just, I'll just say yes to everything. Just stick my nose in wherever I can and see what on earth, what on earth it leads to. It honestly, it's been, it's been a crazy little time. Yeah. Really mad. Well, at least you've had an adventure. You've got a story to tell, you know, it's, um, (laughs) that's, I I do think that is uh, a rich part of life is if you've got, you know, this huge variety to go over and, uh, you know, again, that's the other thing when you're going through those adventures, you always think. I just wish it would stabilise. I just wish it would settle down. I remember seeing a meme that said, being an adult is just saying, well, maybe things will calm down next week for the rest of your life. But um... <laughs> Yeah, I still think that. But, you know, it's like um, one of the the podcast series that I do just for passion. I, I don't do it very often. I've just done two series. Um, it's called The Fuck It Moments. And it is all about those kind of, moments in our life where we kind of click our fingers either by choice or circumstance and we make a change you know we change career we end that relationship that no longer serves us um and and then kind of what happens next and I've definitely had several fuck it moments you know like me leaving that sales job to go jump into the BBC was a huge direction but then another massive one was me walking away from the BBC a couple of years ago to go out on my own and at that stage this podcasting thing you know my dad said to me what the heck are you doing are you mad you're working at the BBC what what is this podding you're talking about like he didn't really understand it because it wasn't like this common like knowledge that we now know it is because it's taken such a quick rise in popularity in the past couple of years um but to kind of take a leap of faith I think and sometimes just go with it even if you don't always know what the all the answers are or someone said to me just think about what one small thing you need to do next and the how will work out later and I think that's that's a cool thing to think about with all kinds of creative processes sometimes like the way that your ideas come to you um and then not like I often sit on, you know, four or five ideas for months and months and months. In fact, I've got two ideas that I've just sat on for about two years and I've recorded some of them, some parts of it. But I don't know where it's going to live yet. And you just sit on those for a long time. Um, but then all the answers, the how will come eventually and just being at peace with that. I, I mean, I say that so simply and I've I've totally resisted that for many years. I'm not like a preacher at you're, all. Yeah, you're, you're, it's not like you've been a lifelong throw caution to the wind and pursue the romantic dream. It's That's kind of taken, a, what, 15 years to manifest, you'd say, something like that? I think it's an ongoing process. You know, like once you accept that you don't finish 
learning when you're at school that you learn every single day and you allow yourself to be a continuous student. I think that is amazing. And even small things like um, I spend many hours working on my own. I spend many hours just with my headphones and my Mac, sat in coffee shops, talking to people. But I also make an effort to go and speak with you know graphic designers with website designers with people in business I go to networking events I go to podcast meetups you know even even come and see like your guys studio and stuff I want to hear what other people are doing what's inspiring them what are they learning so that you kind of look for those opportunities to learn and grow and think oh well how can I bring something to that how could that help a project that I'm working on you know like um AI is huge a uh, new area of the last few years um binaural sound is coming back because of virtual reality so I'm kind of looking at some of that stuff and thinking well how can I use my skills as an audio producer to work with people that are in that field um so that we can make our projects even sexier even bigger um and that kind of stuff is what excites me and when you meet a kindred spirit in that kind of creative world and you get to collaborate with them and you're both fired and you're firing each other i don't think there's anything better no i'm with you on that one we've uh, we've already done 45 minutes and i've not got any music in so i'm going to spend 15 minutes with you just to see if we can get some some of that because i'm guessing that was a big thing for you because you went to become a sound engineer i'm guessing that didn't just come from sound and you said music is <laughs> a big part of your life no like um you know i uh, initially, I was a classical musician, so grade eight violinist. No um, way. Yeah, I toured California with my youth orchestra. Um, and then when I was a teenager, to try and be a bit cooler, I played bass guitar. So yeah. I toured with the soul bands through Belgium and Holland. Um, loved it, loved it, loved it. But when I got to about 18, I just bottled it. I just lost my confidence massively. I don't really know why, what happened. I had a lot of stuff going on in my personal life that might have kind of affected it, really. But then I decided to go behind the mic. And um, it was actually when I was with my youth orchestra and we were recording a CD with, you know, these top, top sound recordists. And I was loving looking at all the mics and geeking out on it. And I just asked them, right, what uni courses would you recommend? And one of the courses they recommended was at Salford Uni. And I don't know why, but I love maths. I love physics. I was doing music anyway. And so then that was it. I was going to go and be a sound engineer or get into acoustics. And so I went to Salford Uni and yeah, that that was amazing. But what was really interesting is I ended up um, sound teching for the student radio station. And uh, it, it it was wicked. But remember once this presenter who I was meant to be driving the desk for didn't turn up. And then they just went, well, you've got to present the show then. And I was like, shit, really? Oh, my God. And that was it. Mike went up and the whole world changed. But when we were there, we were doing, um, I was head of music and we got to interview some amazing people. Like I remember backcombing um, Towers of London's hair whilst we were interviewing them, like before a gig. Um, we took Pennywise on uh, the big Manchester wheel that used to be in um, Exchange yeah. Key. Uh, that was pretty crazy. Um, and so, yeah, it just... It just kind of opened up a, a load of doors. But my passion was always chick rock. I loved like kind of 
riot girl stuff. So I went on to do a radio show with a couple of mates. So by day we were working as Radio 4 producers, but in the evening we did this don't call don't call me bitch was the name of the 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 thing. And we interviewed people like Metronomy. Um yeah, we even interviewed like Kim Gordon, a big Sonic Youth fan. It was just awesome. Um and some other music stuff like the reason that I ultimately came back to Manchester and went to uni in Manchester slash Salford um, was because I was a massive New Order Joy Division fan. I've met them all um, well, now, all. but yeah, but the, because it's, it's really interesting, I ended up bonding with Stephen from um, New Order and he plays ukulele. He lives out in Macclesfield still and he plays ukulele and I, and I play ukulele these days. That's what I do in pubs. I play ukulele. Okay. I do 80 songs with covers and uh, I thought that was that was pretty cool. But yeah, it's, I even worked for Tony Wilson when I was at uni. That was mad. Like, you know, just to kind of say that you worked for Tony Wilson, uh, he's in the city for Manchester was just, it's great. What just were you legend. doing for him there? They had in, in in the city was like, uh, gosh, this is going back to like two thousand and five. I want to say, it was like a meetup for like loads of musos and journalists and stuff, and they put on loads of different talks. And so I was just a mic runner, um, and just had to like welcome people in like to the room. But just to be in that room, you know, with all these people there that you recognise and you've read their articles in NME and. Just to kind of like be around that was just amazing. I was so super excited. It's weird. Everyone in Manchester who I'm aware, who who I know, who was in any way associated with the music scene, which I understand was a lot smaller 20, 30 years ago, has interacted with Tony Wilson to the point where my dad financed a car for Tony Wilson <laughs> and was, uh, was given a New Order CD as a free gift. Yeah. But, you know, like in present day, there's some amazing stuff like seeing New Order at Manchester International Festival um, a couple of years ago was amazing. It was in the old Granada studios and they've got all the boxes with students from RNCM um, who were there playing the keyboards along with them. I thought that was absolutely amazing. But even like, you know, present day, if we kind of go back to like the Riot Girl stuff that I'm, I've always loved, um, you talk about pins, pale waves, uh, coming out of Manchester at the moment. Absolutely brilliant. Like pins are kind of a bit rough and ready. I went to go and see them in this uh, old dance hall slash old radio theatre in Hume. I can't remember the name of the place, Nexus or something like that. And this this building was completely too, like fallen apart and decrepit, but the community had taken it back up because it got huge history and they wanted to get it back. And pins headlined at this gig. And um, it was brilliant. I just I just like how they kind of... That is, comes back to that kind of DIY thing. They're not out, out there to kind of be perfect or anything. They're just doing it for the love of it. And, you know, Black Honey, in a similar kind of ilk to, to Pins and Pale Waves, Black Honey are someone who I really admire what they do because they, they didn't, they've kind of got all the success, not from having a label, but just from really putting together something that they really love. It's like one of their videos... Um, <laughs> They didn't have a big budget to do a music video, so they flew out to America and they actually go to, um, it's like kind of a theme park, but it looks like you're in a cowboy 
um, film. And so they actually paid some of the people, the staff who were working there to be like, pretend to be an extra because they're all like kind of failed actors anyway. Failed, you know what I mean? Yeah. Working actors. Yeah. Not currently working acting. Um, and so they got them to kind of play as extras in their music video. And when you watch it, you just think, wow, that looks like some big Hollywood production. But really, they just kind of snuck in and they were like, you know, filming all these shots. And what it what it does is amazing. Um, and they make a lot of money from their merch. And, uh, you know, right down from like the bottom of like one of their merch bags is like, looks like a, a happy meal thing from McDonald's. So you want to buy the merch because it's real like limited edition stuff. You love the passion that they do. It's inspired by like Quentin Tarantino. It's got that kind of big Hollywood movie feel. They go to town on the creativity of the videos. So then you want to go and watch the YouTube videos because you know without the days of MTV often like music videos it's not really something that people sit down to do anymore like I can remember as a student being absolutely pissed and just watching MTV for hours comatosed unable to move um so I I kind of I miss that stuff but yeah it's just um music will always play a part and I think it plays a massive part in in speech and sound anyway the rhythm of how we talk um it's just it all it all plays a part yeah, absolutely. I uh, hope. I wonder if you could uh, give us some records you think we should all be listening to. Yeah. Oh, um, gosh! I went to Dot to Dot Festival last year, and I was really, really impressed with this band called Crows. Um, they have a track called Silver Tongue, and it's raw. It's rough and ready. And they were they were playing because obviously Dot to Dot festivals across Manchester, and loads of different venues. But they were in Gorilla, and yeah, it was just like there was no kind of real heart, like kind of meaning to it. But I just like the rawness of it. Um, and I'm I'm a big rock fan anyway, so I kind of like stuff that just gets rid of your angst you want to turn it up loud you get in your car and you turn it up to 11 and you put shades on and put the windows down and you know just let it out we all need that right now that's for sure yeah um i was chopping my peppers earlier listening to uh the new kim gordon track have you heard it it's called airbnb no i'll put it on the list (laughs) it's really weird like obviously with with kim gordon you kind of like what is this on about like, is there a point to this? Is there a moral to this song? <laughs> there never is, right? It's just yeah. nonsensical. There's not really a lot of tune, but it's just there's this one section where she just goes, super host, <laughs> just keeps shouting super host. There's, there's nothing to it. But right now I'm kind of enjoying that kind of, yeah, that, that rawness because you just get to switch off. Yeah, if you want to go really... Um raw to the point of maybe it being disastrous and inaccessible have you heard of uh shellac no right so are you you familiar with the uh, engineer called steve albini of course yeah yeah i'm I'm interviewing him i'm interviewing him on the podcast actually uh next week yeah you should get in touch with him actually He, he does a lot of he does a lot of uh these kind of things and i believe uh, while I might chop this out because it's a bit sensitive, he's char- he's charging us because we're a business and it's basically like this is a business tool, um, and that's fine. I said because I've spoken to him twice before and he never charges. If it's, if you're just an individual doing your own thing, he'll speak to you for like an hour and a half and for no cost. Just email 
his uh, office manager, Taylor, at electricalaudio.com. Wow. Yeah, it's cool. So I'm talking to him. He has one of the best bands um, uh, for that kind of thing. They are hilariously sort of Monty Python shellac, but also brutal and uh, raw, like you said. Next time they come to Manchester, I'll see if I can take you along because it's a great show, but I recommend them. It reminds me of... um I once went to go and see this band called Monotonics. I don't know if you've heard them. I think they've disbanded now, but they're basically a bunch of very hairy men Mm -hmm. um, who've got lovely long beards and lovely long hair. And they often perform topless in their pants. Um, Standard performance. But they also go an extra level where they used to come and perform in the audience so they wouldn't be on a stage. They'd actually be with you and the, the audience would hold up the drums so the drummer could play and then the drummer would sit on someone's like kind of shoulders um and then they'd move around so you were never at the back or the front you were always in it and i kind of i love that kind of immersive experience anyway i think that's the super cool but yeah it was like kind of a real live experience um i saw first aid kit once and they came and sat down on the floor in the middle of the audience and asked all the audience to sit down as well. And it was quite nice. It was like someone like was actually singing to you like a bedtime lullaby. It was really nice to feel like that connected with an, with an artist. Um, an amazing festival called Supersonic, uh, which runs in Birmingham. I don't know if it's still going, but they used to have tons of stuff like that. Um just awesome stuff. I used to film there as a camera person. Camera person? Cameraman? I don't know what the PC term is. Cameraman. And that was amazing just to to see that kind of raw, rough and ready. This one guy performing on a piece of glass and all he seemed to do was just move like a microphone over the glass. And it was that was music. I was like... It's very, yeah, um, yeah. That's very Steve Reich, very John Cage, that. Um, have you been to Blue Dot Festival? I haven't, actually. That seems like... I, th- I don't know why, but I just get the impression you might like that. I've been twice. It's great. Um, mm. But, yeah, I mean, I did Glastonbury last year around 2017. Have you done that one? I've not done Glastonbury. Mm. I, I went had a, a couple of years where I went out travelling through Europe, um, did Benny Kassim, <sighs> um Oh, I did one in Belgium as well, Puckle Pop. Yeah. Did that. That was, they were pretty cool. And it's a really different experience. I think once you do a European festival, you can't really go to a British festival. It's Why? like, it's not the same because the weather's better. Um, they've got toilets, they've got showers, the food's a bit more varied. Even at I did Kendall Calling. I did a Kendall Calling last year or the year before, and it just rained. I was cold from Friday through to Monday. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, Gary, our MD, he went to Kendall Calling, and I believe when after he'd done that, his response was a resolute, fuck that, I'm not doing that again. But I believe that's yeah. also because, I mean, for one thing, like, no one's going to score any originality points for complaining about the price of things at festivals. It's part of what you sign up for, and that's why you try and sneak your own booze in. But um, these guys made the mistake of going, you know, eight cans of Red Stripe. <laughs> Uh, 48 quid I think they said 48 quid please <laughs> you know or 42 yeah so <laughs> did you know what I kind of like um, I've lost the love for going to big shows actually what I like you'll find me in Band on the Wall 
in yeah. the, in a midweek evening when there are like three or four bands for a fiver I've never heard before. Just having, uh, just seeing what are they about. I think I'll always be driven to that kind of unsigned DIY stuff because that's where my roots are. You know, that's right. what I was doing when I was at uni. I was interviewing unsigned bands who were on the cusp who were then getting featured on Glastonbury stages because, yeah, that that I just, I kind of like it before they get really big. I like that intimacy and I like to see things a bit rough and ready. And I think Spotify has changed massively the way that we inter- interact with music you know at the moment I'm listening to more music than ever before I'm at home way more and that idea where I just happened to hear like a band by um, a track by Sneaks on Six Music the other day I play a press play and then I did a playlist I did a radio based on that one track and that kind of just sends you on a bit of a, a rabbit warren yeah. um to kind of hear different things and and that inspires me because obviously as a podcast producer I use music you know I yes. I I need to find and source and think of different vibes and different music feels I have to collaborate with film composers with music composers with royalty sites to go and source my music and quite often when I kind of go on these little wandering things from one track to another on Spotify it kind of sparks an idea of all oh, that kind of thing is what I'm looking for um that kind of inspires me uh, to go and find what I need that's relevant for that project well that's that seems like a good place to uh, probably cap it off. We've just done an hour. And I, I was yeah. on the precipice of saying I'd love to um, collaborate with you sometime. I'm sure we'd like to see if there's any way we can write you some music. So yeah. always uh, always keep a... What's the word? What's the phrase they say? Anyway, you know what it is. Open ear. Open ear. That's the one. Perfect. 